our business is probably one of the more unique in the fact that we share a business. It is a coin with two sides and, you know, the studios, you know, we have a large part of this industry in making the movies and sort of coming up with the content, but we have to show it. And the movie theaters are a huge part of that. And, you know, they've done a fantastic job in turning going to theaters into brand loyalists. And there are shared customers. This is the Box Office Podcast, created with the support of Dolby. I'm Russ Fisher, Editorial Director of the Box Office Studios, which provides editorial content to exhibitors. And I'm joined, as always, by Daniel Luria, the Editorial Director of Box Office Pro. And this week, we also have a special guest, Sean Robbins, the Chief Analyst at Box Office Pro. Hey, guys. Welcome. Hey, Russ. Sean. Happy to, to have you on. How are you doing today? Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. You're doing as well as I think any of us can right now. How about yourselves? You know, I'm pretty good. At this point, the weeks all just kind of blend together. Like every day has the same routine, which is I am a person who likes routine, but I don't like this much routine. I completely understand. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm the same way. As we tape this on April 28th, I do have to say it's a special 10-year anniversary of uh, what we all remember as the most iconic uh, sporting event of our generation, the return leg of the Champions League semifinals between Barcelona and Mourinho Inter Milan, which, uh, Russ, I don't know how much into soccer you are, but it's the football equivalent of like late era Godard. Where you just uh, you just like deconstruct everything that brings you pleasure from a medium to the point where it's, like, it's just cynical and you end up hating it because it's so abrasive and there's a certain beauty to it. It's uh, it's the most uh, anti football uh, football that I've seen in my life and I will never forget such a horrible horrible experience uh, that ended up bringing me great joy ten years ago. <laughs> I was kind of lost until you mentioned Godard. And then I just think like, oh, it's the goodbye to language of, of football matches. I've got it. I think all I really, my soccer football expertise is pretty much limited to like scenes in train spotting and probably Shaolin soccer. That's about as far as I go. Well, the goodbye to language. I mean, really, it's the peak of digital 3D is having Godard shoot someone in a toilet in the third dimension. After that, really, it's, it's been downhill. Look, I saw that movie at the Arrow in Santa Monica, and it was beautiful, and I had a great time with it. I genuinely liked that movie a lot, but you're not wrong. <laughs> well, before we get too much off course, there's uh, quite a bit to chat about, I guess, since last week uh, when we first started discussing that movie theaters look like we're being allowed to reopen here in the United States. Right. In a couple of states, there was a discussion of Georgia and Tennessee, and now Texas has joined the mix, where those states were saying that a number of businesses could reopen, and among those businesses were movie theaters. Uh, so where are we at now? What, a week later, what's happening? Well, we've heard from some Texas exhibitors off the record so far on what their plans are for a sort of staggered reopening. I'm sure really by the time this podcast is available, you might uh, find out who of those exhibitors are. There are other exhibitors, such as Alamo Draft House, which has a very big presence in the state of Texas, which have gone out and said they're not ready. They want to take a little bit more time before announcing a reopening of their theaters in the state. 
In fact, the Draft House echoed some of the same language we used last week on our episode where uh, they tweeted saying that they will not be opening Texas theaters yet. And they said, quote, opening safely is a very complex project that involves countless new procedures and equipment, all of which require extensive training, which was pretty much exactly what we discussed last week. So I'm happy to see that, A, that the Draft House is listening to us specifically, but also that they are being cautious. And I think that's going to be the main challenge, right? Making sure that everyone has a plan that makes sense to reopen. I know one Texas exhibitor, uh, Evo Entertainment, which is known for its uh, family entertainment centers, has a very detailed reopening plan that they've already shared on their website. I think that's going to be a, a key way to get in touch with audiences and let them know, hey, these are the measures that we're taking when we're ready to reopen. Of course, that timeline is different for every circuit. Unfortunately, there is one circuit that won't be reopening anytime soon, as the end of last week brought news of the first major exhibition circuit in the North American market filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. That is CMX Cinemas out of Miami, Florida. They are the eighth largest circuit in North America, which is the U.S. and Canada, and the seventh largest in the United States. They are the U.S. subsidiary of Mexican multinational giant Cinemex. They made some headlines, obviously, as we started the sort of COVID-19 rampdown of cinemas with an unexpected announcement saying that they had acquired Texas uh, dine-in chain called Star Cinema Grill. Unfortunately, the next bit of news that we heard was uh, the announcement that they would be filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy uh, due to complications on the business end because of this COVID-19 crisis. Chapter 11 is very different as Chapter 7. It uh, suggests a financial restructuring, and we'll be giving you updates on that story as it happens. And then the last thing before we dive into the main story today is Trolls World Tour, which uh, you may remember from an earlier episode is the film that was scheduled to open in April from Universal Pictures. Universal, rather than delaying the movie, as Universal did with F9, Fast and Furious, they sent the movie straight to VOD. And now uh, Universal is trumpeting some numbers, which are generating a little bit of pushback. Sean, can you summarize where we are with this story right now? I think we have to do a, a, a deeper dive into the data at this point, because we're talking about a number that is still well short of what the first film made at the global box office. 100 million in a couple of weeks versus nearly 350 million worldwide from the first film. And of course, revenue will still continue to come in in the coming weeks, but it's comparing apples to oranges. And this is essentially jumping ahead to a revenue stream that doesn't ordinarily take place for a film until further down the road because theatrical typically comes first. And I really feel that NATO's statement today put it best, John Fithian, NATO president and CEO, says theaters provide a beloved immersive shared experience that cannot be replicated an experience that many of the VOD viewers of this film would have participated in had the world not been sequestered at home, desperate for something new to watch with their families. We're comparing numbers in a vacuum. There's no precedent for a, for a digital release like world tour. And it's ultimately a film aimed not just at families, but had other, other uh, mer merchandising concerns to, to factor in. So 
yeah, this is something we're all going to be talking about for a while. But at the end of the day, it doesn't represent any kind of major change to the business model of, of exhibition. I think something that John Fithian said there is pretty important, which is his mention of families kind of desperate for content to watch at home. You've got families who are working from home with children who are also also at home, who those children need to be occupied all throughout the day. And for people who are not used to doing that, it's a really huge task. Uh, you start to realize exactly how important childcare is and how underdeveloped some of our resources are to provide it when all of our typical, you know, structures are stripped away. And Trolls World Tour is seems to have been a pretty good stand in childcare for at least a couple hours for a lot of people. And you wonder how many people rented the movie simply because they knew that it could keep their kids occupied, which is not necessarily to take anything away from Trolls World Tour. It is that it is a we're in a unique, as you said, and never before seen environment. Absolutely. And figures wise, we're comparing a $20 rental to otherwise would have been, say, a family of four going to the theater and paying significantly more than that for the experience. And that is that's where the comparison, I think, in you, know, you can pay X amount to watch it at home versus you're going to pay a little bit more to get a much better experience in the theater makes this just a very it's not a comparison at all. And I don't understand. I don't see how we're going to really have a point of comparison until we're under normal circumstances again. It's been a month into this uh, quarantine and social distancing, and we've only seen five studio titles go straight to PVOD, two of those uh, being children's films. So I think, uh, you know, what, what Russ brings up is, is a very good point. Uh, these are uh, digital babysitting opportunities that are uh, sorely needed right now, but I'm uh, not sure it's going to be a lasting impact on the future of theatrical or home entertainment. You know, last week we mentioned that uh, Universal's The King of Staten Island was still scheduled for a June release. And of course, immediately after that episode went live, a couple of days after we recorded it, Universal bumped that to exclusively PVOD, which is going to hit. The movie is going to arrive on digital for rental in June. And I think that could be an interesting benchmark. You know, let's see how that movie does where it doesn't have the young audience built in. It doesn't have some of the same kind of crossover family potential. Obviously it's a Judd Apatow movie starring by and kind of inspired by the life of Pete Davidson, uh, the SNL cast member. So it's a very different audience. It's a, there are a whole lot of things that are different about that movie. And so I'm going to be really curious to see how it performs for Universal in June. So moving on to our main topic this week, Sean spoke to Damon Wolf, the chief marketing officer and head of global distribution at Lionsgate, which has recently begun the Lionsgate Live initiative. Uh, Sean, can you tell us a little bit about what's going on uh, with Lionsgate and how they are reaching out to audiences directly via the internet right now? Right. Yeah, this is, I think, one of the initiatives that has the broader support of the industry right now. NATO, a number of studios, exhibitors have really supported the way Lionsgate has handled it. And, you know, this is essentially a, a way for them to introduce their library of films and celebrate that communal experience of watching a movie together. Granted, it's virtually. We're, we're not able to sit with our family and friends and watch these movies, but they bring up this chat screen where everybody can you know, just interact while the movie plays. And it's a unique experience that I, th 
you know, I really think it's it's one of the it's probably one of the steps that we need to lead back into to theatrical viewing and and their their announcements so far of the films that they've chosen to do it with have have generated a lot of a lot of positive feedback. And, you know, I, I would almost expect them to maybe keep it going. Right now, they've got four films scheduled, and we're halfway through the the schedule, right? They began with The Hunger Games and then went to Dirty Dancing, both of those over the past two Fridays. Uh, this Friday, they will be screening La La Land, and then they will finish up with John Wick on May 8th. Is that correct? Yes. Yes, that's right. One thing I thought was interesting is when they announced this series with the Hunger Games first up, I was kind of like, oh, okay, that's, you know, I, I wondered where the Hunger Games audience was now that we're a few years removed from the end of that series. And then it was a day or two after that event took place that they announced the development of a Hunger Games prequel. And I thought, oh, okay, this is sort of a marketing synergy thing, which isn't to be entirely cynical, but I, it seems like that was pretty clearly planned from the start. That means that I'm hoping for Diego Luna to come back for a Dirty Dancing 3 in the coming years. <laughs> or a Dirty Dancing 0, you know. <laughs> a man can only hope. So, Sean, you spoke to Damon. Can you kind of give us a quick summary of the conversation you two had? Yeah, so our conversation really gravitated toward mostly the Lionsgate Live initiative, but that was kind of underlined by this sense of enthusiasm that everybody worked, who worked on the initiative brought to it. And he was very, you know, very candid in speaking about how important exhibitions support has been and maintaining that relationship and just making sure that everyone understands this is not this is not a new normal. This is not how we're going to release our movies going forward. And it's, it's just about watching movies together. I love it because it's just been part of everything that I've ever grown up with. But our business is probably one of the more unique in the fact that we share a business. It is a coin with two sides, and, you know, the studios, you know, we have a large part of this industry in making the movies and sort of coming up with the content, but we have to show it somewhere. And and the movie theaters are a huge part of that, and, you know, they've done a fantastic job in turning going to theaters into brand loyalists, and there are shared customers, you know, the people who work there and popcorn purveyors to ticket takers to, you know, the projectionists, I mean... They make the movie-going experience something that we can't do because we do our side of it. That was Damon Wolf, CMO over at Lionsgate. A very interesting initiative here, guys. Uh, I like the fact that this is an example of a studio going out, finding uh, resources in the talent community in Hollywood to really help this fundraising effort for uh, cinema workers. Obviously, the Will Rogers uh, Motion Pictures Pioneers Foundation is uh, one of the nonprofits in the industry that's always helped cinema workers, and their help through the Pioneers Assistance Fund is currently helping those that have lost their employment due to this uh, COVID-19 crisis. Sean, did you get a sense from Damon uh, what kind of response they've had or or what sort of audience numbers they've pulled in with the first couple streamings that they've done? So Damon mentioned uh, they had up to about 200,000 people watching at any one point. And it's hard to compare that to any kind of number, but that's on the surface. of a, It's pretty impressive for a movie. Now, that's that's referencing Hunger Games. That's impressive for a movie that came out eight years ago 
and is widely available to view or buy or rent a number of different ways. And I think that really speaks to kind of the the, the interest in this whole initiative. We had 200,000 people at some point kind of tune in to this. Now refer to them as America's audience. They watched during this three-hour live event. And we had 8 million impressions and 100,000 conversations that stemmed from this. And the fact that we were able to raise some money, I mean, I thought it was brilliant. You know, any sort of fears that I had about going into it, by the time it was over, it was just like, I can't believe we just did that. And there wasn't like a dead space of like three minutes of blank airtime that you sort of always fear about things like this. And then now, listen, we've had a week to sort of tinker and, and learn and sort of, I think you'll find tonight is going to be um, just as sort of beautifully authentic, but a little more kind of, you know, we were able to have a little more time to sort of learn from the past one. And do I think we'll do more like this? Well, obviously we've got, you know, La La Land and then we've got John Wick, but this is a concept. I was talking to Sylvester Stallone this weekend and he was like, I think we should do one for Rambo. And I'm thinking, well, if this continues, I can see a Rambo Marathon weekend on one of these channels. So I think there's there's ideas out there. We do have a library of work that I think is interesting for a, a crowd, particularly for this live streaming crowd. But the fact that movies and the exhibitors and NATO were excited about a movie live streaming was I mean, that in itself was, you know, exciting because we were doing it for a cause, but it's not something we would look at as for an the platform. But for events and specialized things like this, absolutely. I think it would be, you see the excitement about it. I think that certainly as far as the numbers go, they're helped a little bit by having talent on board. Uh, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis has been involved in introducing and sort of discussing the films. And that's certainly a draw because Jamie Lee Curtis, as any listeners who've been to CinemaCon recently will know, is extremely entertaining, is a terrific speaker, uh, is very outspoken and has opinions and is not shy about sharing them, which makes her terrific to listen to. You know, there you get the suggestion that Sylvester Stallone might join in, which is a pretty big deal. You know, if you get other talent on board, especially people who, you know, want to be part of this and want to represent, you know, the films that they've created, that I think is the biggest draw here in a lot of ways. You know, like you guys say, these movies are pretty widely available. And the great premise of social media is that it removes some of the distance between audiences and the creators that they're fans of. And so if you get a chance to be a little bit closer to Jamie Lee Curtis, Sylvester Stallone, you know, Ryan Johnson, who did Knives Out, any of these people, many more that I could name, that's a huge thing that I think helps keep people interested in the movies overall. And in fact, I think reminds them of why they were interested in the first place. So Sean, with respect to a communal movie experience, did you have any further conversation with Damon about other ideas on that front? I did. And his answer was almost perfect. I felt because I felt like, you know, is this initiative a stepping stone toward reintegrating moviegoers into that experience of going to the theater and he spoke to how the idea of the movies will be the things that do that. And that was probably one of my favorite parts of the conversation. Yeah, this was a specific idea to capture that communal experience of seeing a movie together. 
And that is not something that you do when you stream something at home. That's why I think we've put so much effort into sort of the the commenting and sort of like the participation and stuff because we really wanted to make this a communal experience because that is the power of movies. When you're watching a movie like Knives Out and you can just feel the energy that some people are a little ahead of the movie and some people are a little behind the movie and some people are like right there and you feel that energy as, as you're traveling with the movie. So as far as this is a, a tool for like to get people back in the theaters, I think that movies will do that. We thought we can frame a marketing campaign around the idea of going back to the movies. And let's not forget, we did have the last movie in a movie theater with I Still Believe. So who knows? Maybe I'll run that again uh, when they open up. But I think there's plenty of studios with a lot of movies. And right now, I think we're all just waiting to see as we sort of date our movies and really using our content as drivers in itself and skewing it, our marketing campaigns in a way to sort of help define that. You know, the thing that we've discussed here multiple times is not just when we can all go back to the movie theater, but it's about how exhibitors and studios communicate the reopening to audiences and reassure them that it is safe to go back to the theater. There are a lot of big questions. On the box office side, we've been creating a campaign called Movies Together, which uses the hashtag Movies Together, all one word, to kind of act as a pledge to reaffirm the idea that we all do want to go back to the theater. And the idea is simply, you know, we're not collecting any I say pledge, but we're not collecting any money and there's no actual, you know, we're not creating a big marketing database or anything like that. It's really a way to just kind of see one another and see that like, oh yeah, we all do want to go back to the theater. We want to have this communal experience. The virtual one is nice and it's a good substitute, but it's not exactly the thing that we're all in this for in the first place. And I don't think I'm alone in thinking that Daniel and Sean, I imagine you guys are probably in the same place. 100%. I'm just thinking back to a year ago this week, we were talking about the biggest story in box office history, at least for an opening weekend, and that was the Avengers. And it's odd to think of how things have changed in 12 months, but I think the optimistic view is, you know, we'll be talking about those kinds of things again eventually. It's, it's when and not if. Absolutely. I agree. You know, I saw some headlines trumpeting the idea the Avengers Endgame box office record is going to hold perhaps forever. And that seems a little pessimistic to me. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's the funny thing about record when they're set. There's always this contingent of, well, we'll never see that happen again. And within a few years, something happens again. (laughs) And, you know, despite being on the business side, I'm always still a little uneasy with the idea of just trumpeting a box office record absent any other context for a movie of any kind. I guess on a personal level, I, you know, not being an investor in or producer of any of these movies, I'm not really attached to that. I don't really care what made a record amount of money. I want to see a good movie. I want to see a lot of good movies. Exactly. And I think a lot of people feel that way. It's kind of working on the business side. It's especially working with with box office numbers, it's easy to to get lost, but there's so much more meaning to the movies than just a dollar figure on an opening weekend or a global tally or a profit margin that a studio makes. I mean, it's an art form and a business, and it's unfortunately one of those gets thrown to the wayside a little bit more often than it really should. Literally, as we are recording this, California Governor Gavin Newsom 
spoke and said specifically that he considers movie theaters to be part of the stage three opening in what would ultimately be a six prong relaxation of COVID-19 restrictions. And specifically, he was really saying that theaters would open in months and not in weeks, which is perhaps more in keeping with uh, the stringent guidelines that are probably necessary to curtail the virus rather than what we're seeing in uh, states like Texas and Tennessee and Georgia. I think it's it's also a reflection of how scattershot and piecemeal this recovery effort is is getting when uh, we have looking at, at a region like Europe, different countries have a different tackling with the virus in different rates and have different policies to getting back. Even looking at a country like the United States, we have states, in some instances, states neighboring each other that are looking to have very different policies and guidelines for an industry that depends on wide releases, on the availability of a unified marketing campaign for these wide releases to perform well, I think it's going to be difficult to get better clarity on how this cinema recovery is going to look like unless there's some sort of uh, unified approach into all of this. Otherwise, we're going to be seeing very mixed messages where you're going to be promoting uh, an experience in one state and in another state, you have a very different guidelines. I think that's going to be a, a tough challenge that the industry is going to have to overcome. So for the time being, we will continue to hold on to Warner Brothers has established as a literal tentpole, uh, which is the July 17th release, Christopher Nolan's new movie, Tenet. It's like anything. I think what you're doing is beautiful. And I think that having your support of box office and sort of the theatrical experience is necessary because it is special. It's why we did this and it's why you're seeing sort of these studios with these big support and fighting for that because it is something special. And sometimes things like this, these events sort of speed up things that might be happening or already organically, but the theatrical experience and the communal experience of watching a movie together, you know, I've lived with and been a part of, and it's been such a part of my own family's life for so long. My mother used to tell me that when they invented television, my grandparents were like, oh, good God, the movie business is dead. And it did not die. And then color TV came out. Oh, good Lord, the movie business is dead. It did not. Cablevision. HBO, the little box. Remember when it had the little lock on the box? Cablevision, satellite, pay-per-view, 460 channels, you name it, anytime you want to. There's something special about going and sitting in a dark room with 400 of your closest friends and the lights go down, the curtains rise, and you've got that popcorn. Mine is butter in the middle, and I put the M&M's inside the popcorn. There's a meditative experience to it that you can't get anywhere else. And so I think that's the message. And that's sort of kind of like what I hope you will continue with things like this to sort of discuss because I think it's an important part of the human experience. Daniel and Sean, thank you both for signing on this week and for contributing your insights. Russ, thanks again for uh, having us here. And Sean, thank you for joining. Thank you both for having me. Great to talk to you guys, as always. And to everyone listening, thank you for listening. This has been the Box Office Podcast, produced by Bradley Dunham and Caitlin Kehoe. 
We will be back next week with a further exploration of the ever-shifting box office business landscape. In the meantime, please subscribe to our show. Please rate us. And if you like what you hear, recommend us to friends and colleagues. You can find the Box Office Podcast on any podcast service of your choice. 